This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Even with some recent storms and some snow on the way, Connecticut hasn't seen as much rain as it needs. In fact, most of Connecticut is in what we call a moderate drought. It's caused government officials to ask residents to conserve water. Our water resources, once thought to be far more abundant than those out west, where drought seems to be a part of daily life, well, they might not be as limitless as we once thought. Today, where we live, we will consider what it means to be in a drought for a few months here in New England, for a few years in California, and maybe as a way of life in the future. We had this conversation recently during the Paris Climate Summit. If you'd like to join this conversation, comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me in studio is John Mullaney. He's hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's New England Water Science Center, Connecticut office. John, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Also with us by phone is Mark Svoboda, who's climatologist at the National Drought Mitigation Center, which is based at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Mark, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on, John. First, let's just get some baseline understanding of what we're talking about. Mark, what is a drought? Well, that's uh, the million-dollar question, and I think what makes drought sometimes difficult to uh, relay to the public is the fact that uh, there's so many definitions, and depending on what your vocation is, what you do, uh, drought is when it impacts you. So we have a lot of different definitions. Typically, we categorize them uh, anywhere from sort of short-term to agricultural to more of the long-term water supply ones, which we call hydrological drought. So if it really depends on what you do or how you view drought, is there, a, is there one measure that you look at, Mark, that says, okay, now we can say that California or Connecticut is in a drought? Well, right. So again, depending on if it's more of that agricultural drought, we're looking at soil moisture. And when that recovers uh, sufficiently enough that, that folks uh, don't have to irrigate or, or if it rains and that, that alleviates that pressure on the soil moisture, then you're good. However, if you're a municipality and you're relying on a reservoir uh, storage or groundwater or stream flow, uh, depending on your source of water, then uh, that, drought, that drought might end at a different time. So they're not always synced up. Mark, how much of the U.S. is in a drought right now? Yeah, so for the lower 48, we have about 22% of the U.S. in drought. So we've really come down about um, 8% over the last three months. We've seen a pretty good fall uh, for most of the eastern half of the United States. Okay, so is that historically a high number, a low number, just about right? Um, I guess if you look at it, what's probably biasing it right now is the large amount of the severe drought in the western U.S. from California up the coast to Washington. And so that's keeping that number a little high. Typically, in any given year, you would expect anywhere from around 12 uh, to 15 percent of the country in some sort of drought. So we're still a little above that. And a last definition then uh, from you, uh, a severe drought versus a moderate drought, the type that we're experiencing in Connecticut right now. What's the difference? Well, then you're starting to get into either it can be one of two things. It can be a duration factor uh, the longer the drought lasts, um, obviously that intensity or that magnitude increases, the impacts increase. So impacts are a real measure of, of what we try to do with uh, the drought monitor, which is the statistics I'm basing this off of. Um, and, and so the, the shorter-term droughts um, doesn't mean you can't have an intense drought if it occurs at the right time. So real estate's a lot about location, <laughs> location, location, and droughts are all about timing, timing, timing. Mm. I want to turn to John Mullaney to give us an overview of current conditions in Connecticut. What can you tell us about the drought conditions in our state right now, John? Well, right now, um, I think what we have is we've had a deficit in precipitation where over the last 60 days or so, we've been about 50 to 90 percent of normal, depending on where you are in the state. And it's been pretty similar for about the last six months. 
uh, somewhere in that range. So the deficit is probably on the order of, depending on where you are in the state again, because we do have variability, uh, something like 2 to 12 inches over the last 180 days. And and that's a deficit in rainfall, the the amount of precipitation that we're getting. That's right. Um, Now, when we look at some of the other measures that we talk about, for instance, uh, stream flow is one that we'd be sort of concerned about at the moment. Uh, Even with a little bit of the rain that we've gotten, we're in this sort of below normal to much below normal conditions. And, um, you know, so that's, uh, you know, we've also got um, low groundwater levels right now where our, you know, most of our groundwater levels are in the below to much normal range. Um, Our reservoir levels in the state are at fairly low capacity. As At the end of October, they were about... 70% 70% of capacity, which is about 85% of normal. Okay, so when we talk about things like groundwater or stream flow or reservoir levels, obviously it's completely intuitive that one of the things that would contribute to those levels would be the amount of precipitation that we're getting. What are the other things? I mean, are there other reasons why stream flow might be low or reservoir levels might be low? Does it have to do with consumption at all? Is there some other factor that I don't know about? Uh, in this case, I don't think it's as much of a consumption factor. I think it, a lot of it has to do with the timing of when we've gotten our precipitation. Uh, for instance, groundwater levels tend to rise during the non-growing season when we get rainfall. So basically the period of the, of the year from when we get our uh, first frost, you know, say sometime in October, to our last frost in May. And so any kind of water we can get into the ground um, during that time period is important. And that's where we build a lot of our water storage in Connecticut uh, right now, that's probably one of the things that's driving low stream flow is this low groundwater level uh, that we have. And uh, even though we've gotten probably mm, up to seven inches of uh, precipitation in the last uh, 60 days. Uh, when it comes to groundwater, are you hearing stories of people whose wells are undergoing problems where people are having to dig new wells? Or has that not been as, as longstanding a problem during this drought? Um, sometimes we get a lot of calls in our office about these things when they start to happen frequently. And we've, we got a few calls over the summer, but not, but not too many. So I don't think it's become that much of a problem yet. Uh, we do have a statewide groundwater monitoring network, and some of our wells are, are in the normal range, but there are others that are quite low and record lows for this time of year. If you have questions or thoughts about drought in Connecticut and the rest of the U.S. and really the world, we'd like to hear from you at 860-275-7266. If your wells dried up, you see low stream flows where you are or low reservoir levels, we'd like to hear from you. So, Mark, how do some of these conditions impact us? Obviously, we hear about what happens in California, right? People have to massively change the way in which they use the water resource. But talk about some other ways in which a drought may affect the people who live in a drought-affected uh, area? Of course, again, it kind of depends on what you do. But, you know, even for some folks, this can be a positive um, if you're in, say, construction, for example, or in the case of viticulture. So there are some, I don't want to make it all seem like doom and gloom, um, there are some winners when you have these sort of uh, droughts. But when you look at how you're impacted more on the negative side, obviously agri- agriculture comes to mind right away. Um, because it can respond much more quickly to a dry spell, especially the shorter dry spells. Um, You know, you touched on a really good point earlier, too, that the one dynamic that's more fluid in droughts and assessing droughts and impacts is vulnerability. And so, you know, if population increases, um, that use of that water or uh, the case of urban sprawl when that water's flushed through that system much more quickly 
Um, you know, in the case of California, their last major drought back in the, in the mid-late 70s, 20 million people. Now they have 40 million people. They're actually using less water than they did 30, 40 years ago, uh, to their credit. But at some point, that system, there's still the same amount of finite water that we're all tapping into. Of course, you mentioned earlier uh, construction and viticulture maybe some sectors that are actually improved by a, a bit of drought. Of course, you can't really build when it's wet out. And uh, viticulture, you're growing grapes, they're really good in, in dry climate. But I'm sure, John, that it, it does have an impact in, in various parts of the state. Low stream levels can really affect fishing on our rivers. Uh, low uh, levels at the reservoirs, I'm sure, have other impacts for us, too. What are the things you see here in Connecticut whenever we're in a drought, John? We, we do have, uh, I know, for instance, one of the things to think about, we think about our fisheries, and I know uh, some of our um, colleagues at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection were stocking fish this year and had to put off the fish stocking in some of the rivers because the water levels were, the, were quite low. Um, so that would be just one example of something that you don't normally uh, think about with the low water levels. Um, but we also think of issues like hydropower, the ability to produce power from some of these rivers, and we ha- we do have power dams on a number of the larger rivers in Connecticut. I- I'm wondering, Mark, if we can go to a place like California and talk about what is happening right now with drought there, and maybe we can put into some context about the, the types of conditions that we have in California after maybe four years of drought versus, you know, a few months of drought in a state like Connecticut. Maybe give us a little bit of perspective here. Yeah, so it is hard to compare them apples to apples. I think one thing you've touched on quite well already is this duration component and the fact that California, uh, year four, year five, depending on where you're at, uh, makes a huge difference. Um, of course, the, the West is built for buffering these longer-term droughts, multi-year droughts, let's say, um, but even those can't last a decade. And we know that historically droughts can last decade or decades, if you will. So. Um, while they have reduced their risk to drought and they've buffered that somewhat, uh, in the East Coast, uh, in general, you don't see as many of these large, huge, large uh, reservoirs like a Lake Mead or Lake Powell um, that supply water to millions and millions of people. So you're a little bit more subject to these short-term droughts can put a little bit more strain a little bit more quickly on the system than it does in the West. So there's, there's a difference in that when you look at uh, East Coast versus West Coast. But I want to make a, a point very clear that you know, drought is not a co- uncommon at all in the east, and we've had some multi-year droughts, uh, particularly uh, in the mid-Atlantic, um, but we've had them pretty regularly even going back uh, the last, say, 10, 15 years in the northeast and around Connecticut as well. And coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about the impacts of climate change and whether or not we might see more drought-like conditions in places like the northeast. I want to go to the phones, though. Uh, Mary is calling from Hartford. Uh, Mary, go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi. I just want to point out that groundwater in urban-suburban areas is impacted by conventional design practices, which uh, shunt stormwater and rainwater from roofs and and roadways and and parking lots into uh, sewer systems, or then they flash flood an urban-suburban stream. And uh, so what that does is it doesn't recharge the groundwater. It causes the stream to... Uh, flush a lot of uh, polluted water through its system, heated polluted water, and then the stream level drops, and it, that doesn't support aquatic life in our urban suburban neighborhoods, such as Trout Brook or the North Branch of the Park River, uh, Piper Brook, those types of area of of, of streams 
um, are heavily impacted uh, by design practices, and and that those citizens uh, in all these neighborhoods, urban suburban areas, can make a huge difference by starting to transition to um, uh, green infrastructure by capturing stormwater runoff from parking lots and uh, creating bioswales or rain gardens and uh, and just recharging the groundwater in their neighborhood and that will become increasingly important as as climate change uh, sucks sucks the water out of out of the air Mary I want to get a, a comment from one of our um, one of our panelists here but uh, I know that you work closely on water resources in our state you've mentioned a few things that you think can help alleviate this problem are you talking about on an individual level are you talking about on a on a civic level, more incentives for certain types of building. To talk a little bit more about what you'd like to see happen in order to make sure that the uh, groundwater is being recharged. Well, on an individual level, somebody can disconnect their their downspout. Uh, they can uh, capture rainwater runoff in their yard. They can build a build a rain garden in their yard or their church or their school. That's a smaller scale type of uh, design feature to capture stormwater runoff and to infiltrate it into a garden area. But uh, at a civic scale, our municipal leaders and, of course, the Water and Sewer Authority in this area, the MDC, which is investing $50 million a year in the, in the Hartford area, they could invest in larger design systems um, by engineers, bioswales, which have a much deeper rock substrate that captures a larger volume of water, especially from big parking lots. Of course, a lot of times parking lots are treeless, so just simply asking uh, your, uh, you know, someplace where you go frequently, your church or your your employer, to put trees, uh, to put a, a, a landscape feature in your parking lot, uh, maybe that would help motivate mm-hmm. them to ask uh, ask. And there's funding available for that. There's 319 funding. The the governor has uh, $20 million for green infrastructure in the budget. But municipalities have to ask for it, and our civic leaders have to know that their citizens want it, because right now the word really hasn't gotten out, especially in the Hartford area. Well, Mary, thank you very much, as always, for your phone call. I appreciate it. And and I want to actually turn to John Mullaney and, and ask you, and also Mark, but you first, John. I mean, Mary gives a lot of really good ideas. I don't know if you if you have any comments on that or any other thoughts. I know from serving on a local uh, board and commission in my own town here in Connecticut that there is a, there has been a trend towards a lot of this green infrastructure and new development and trying to maintain the natural hydrology as much as possible because a lot of our a lot of our older development in the state uh the original idea was pretty much if you had rainfall uh, to really just get that water off of roads and into storm drains and away from areas where it might be of a concern, and there's there's been a lot of change and a lot of movement in this direction towards uh, this green infrastructure. I'm wondering, Mark, if you could just quickly uh, comment on that. Obviously, Connecticut, you know, we have a certain view of how rainwater should be funneled into various systems. Of course, if you're in a much more drought-affected area, you probably have either some sort of civic rules about what you need to do to conserve water, or you have a very different view of it. I'm wondering if you can give us the bigger picture on some of the ideas that Mary threw out there. Well, I really, I really agree uh, wholeheartedly with what with Mary laid out there. In fact, these 
when we talk about mitigation actions in the drought community, mitigation is not GHG or greenhouse gas, greenhouse gas reduction. Uh, mitigation are actions you can take prior to drought or during the onset of drought or during drought to reduce your impact. And these are excellent points that I think she laid out. I, I will say what's, what, what you may not believe is that many states don't allow people to collect the water off the roof. And so this is some change that probably needs to happen in a, in a warming world where with climate change, we need to think about reusing that water, retasking that water, and not just new design, but redesign of, of other infrastructures to capture that water going forward. Mark Svoboda is a climatologist at the National Drought Mitigation Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He joins us by phone today. John Mullaney is in studio. He's a hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's New England Water Science Center, their Connecticut office. When we come back from our break, we'll be joined by Gary Yo from Wesleyan University and talk about some of the impacts of climate change on drought conditions. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about drought conditions here in Connecticut. We're far behind in our rainfall levels over the course of the last few months. In places like California, they're far behind for years. And we're talking about that with a panel of experts. I want to bring into our conversation Gary Yo, who's Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University. He's joined us many times in the past to talk about climate change and recently on our program over the summer to talk about water as a resource. Gary, as always, welcome back to Where We Live. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So first of all, in the context of the Paris summit that's going on right now, with all of the things that uh, world leaders are talking about around climate change, how does drought play into this? I mean, how how big is the conversation around drought conditions and climate change? I think uh, they are significant. Uh, They are one of the many players on the extreme weather events calendar and and docket. Droughts have occurred in every all at on every continent. Um, they've uh, occurred certainly in North America. Texas has has suffered suffered a severe drought. California has suffered a se- severe drought. Not sure New England has suffered a severe drought, but we are certainly um, below average in terms of in terms of rainfall. One of the one of the things that people in Paris are worried about, though, is not only are drought conditions a source of concern, but the opposite of drought, um, extreme precipitation, particularly after it follows the drought, so where we're in, in the ground is, is very, very hard and 
uh, cannot absorb the water. It just creates enormous amounts of flooding. That's what's happened in Texas. And this idea of extreme precipitation, it's one of the, the many confounding, challenging things that you study. I mean, amongst the things that uh, world leaders are talking about in Paris, and that I know that you work on daily, everything from sea level rise to temperature rise to these extreme storm conditions, uh, but also extreme weather conditions like drought. I guess I'm wondering, uh, Gary, how you feel like the notion of a global drought fits in in terms of the hierarchy of problems that climate change is causing? Because in a place like California, we see obvious economic problems that are spreading across the United States. But that's just one of many things that we have to have to think about. Do you think the drought rises to the level of the top two or three concerns uh, that are on the minds of people who are in Paris right now? Top three, uh, I think absolutely, and the economic uh, ramifications are certainly significant, and California is, is a, a great example of that, so, so is Texas. I think sea level rise is the easiest to get your the head around, uh, and the manifestations of coastal storms, even if they're not hurricanes or cyclones, um, is something that people worry about. Um, Extreme precipitation um, and the flooding that those create, um, uh, those events create, are, are, are also certainly things that people worry about. Um, but drought is, is, is another one, and it's, it's another one not only because of the drought conditions, but also because of the environment that it creates that makes um, places very susceptible to wildfires and really damaging secondary events. Maybe you can uh, lay out for us some of the real economic ramifications, say, of the drought in California. I mean, one obvious thing is if it's harder to grow fruits and vegetables in California, it's going to probably cost more for us to buy them here in New England. But that's not the only one. I mean, give us a sense of the economic impact of drought, Gary, in, in California right now. Well, I think I, I think you're exactly right in thinking about the, the implications with respect to the national market. Um, but the national market is really tied into um, other markets, and, and so uh, a, a shortfall in California can easily be handled by uh, the market in looking for other places for strawberries and, and, and things that the California generates. What is really um, impactful is within California. Uh, the people that uh, depend on agriculture and wine uh, for their living are finding it harder and harder and harder uh, to make ends meet. Janelle is calling from East Haddam. Hello, Janelle. You're on where we live. Hello. I thank your team for highlighting the moderate drought that our region is having. This is such a teachable moment to look at how the hydrologic cycle connects us to all of life. I'm noting that our current economic measures don't always take into account the whole of the ecologic system of which we live. Um, I'm thinking of the impacts of this moderate drought, perhaps, on the eastern flyway for our migrating birds, for the impacts on the amphibians and reptiles, um, the beavers. Uh, your previous guest did speak about the fisheries, but it had the edge of speaking about it from a human resource and harvesting instead of a sense of the health of the whole ecosystem. So I'm wondering if your guests could comment on how we might use this as an opportunity to 
deep an awareness of how water connects us all. Uh, Janelle, thank you very much for that. Gary Yo, I'd like you to comment first, and then I'll get some uh, comments from our other panelists. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, uh, Janelle, you're exactly right, and the implications on ecosystems and specific species and things like that um, are, are uh, easily observed um, and detected. I, I'm an economist, so this is going to sound very strange, but I would recommend that you not try to put those impacts into dollars and cents. Um, those, the, there are methods out there that can do that, but they're very contentious, and the argument then focuses on the method rather than the impact. What I would suggest is exactly what you just did. Um, put them in a different category, categorize them, uh, highlight them as a reason for concern. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2001 generated uh, reasons for concern and risks to unique and, and threatened species um, uh, were, was one of the um, reasons for concern and there was a deliberate um, decision not to try to quantify those in currency. I just want to, I want to ask you a follow-up on that, Gary. You and I have talked about this uh, uh, quite a bit in the past, but I think it's an important thing to note that as an economist, you're saying that there are some things that are so important to our ecosystems, to our planet, that we don't put uh, a monetary figure on them. I mean, it seems as though in the world of climate change, almost everything has a number. We talk about carbon sequestration and whether or not we should plant trees in order to uh, take care of greenhouse gases. But indeed, you seem to suggest that there are some things that should get outside the economist's purview. I'm not sure they're outside the economist's purview, but they are outside of the metric that economists <laughs> are comfortable using. Um, the the economics that uh, underlies all of this discussion is opportunity cost and trade-offs and and so highlighting um implications with respect to unique and threatened systems, which also include human systems, uh, the risk of extreme precipitation or extreme weather events uh, without quantifying exactly the dollar amount, um, but just recognizing the impacts on human well-being, um, risks of very, very large um, irreversible changes that would be global. Um, that uh, at the moment we really can't even think about quantifying in dollars and cents, but we can categorize them and describe them and give relative likelihoods to them. Those become part of the political discussion. Uh, and then it's up to the political de decision makers to do the trade-off calculation. Mm. We're talking with Gary Yo from Wesleyan University. Also with us here is John Mullaney uh, with the U.S. Geological Survey's New England Water Science Center. I'm wondering, John, if you might uh, comment briefly on on our caller and, and her call to take a look at the impact on our on our ecosystems of droughts like these. Right. Well, clearly that's very important. I didn't mean to indicate that. Uh, I was just trying to come up with an example of uh, one other one other thing we think of, because most people, when you think of the water resources, we think of those sort of the traditional things, whether it's hydropower, uh, our water supply, um, um, you know, our dilution of our sewage um, from our wastewater treatment facilities. But uh, clearly, you know, we have important ecosystems in the state. And um, when we do get into low water and drought conditions, 
uh, we do threaten things such as low groundwater levels threaten our wetlands, and those wetlands may be important for a particular uh, vegetation type, and that vegetation may be important for, say, a particular migratory bird species or something along those lines. So there's there's a lot of connections between all of these things, and uh, I think the drought adds to the stress that we uh, put on the system, our human stress on the system with our um, you know, impervious surfaces and storm drains and uh, and many of these other things, which really change the hydrology in a drastic way. I'm wondering if you can uh, comment a little bit on the impact of, of climate change on some of this. Have you, have you seen uh, changes in how the snow melt, say, in Connecticut and New England has fed the water supply over the course of the last several years, John? Well, one of the things I can say, I've been recently doing some research on long-term stream flows in the state and uh, you know, although we're here talking about drought, one of the things that we're we're generally seeing since the 1970s is an increase in stream flow on average. Um, and, uh, and as a matter of fact, some of the wettest years have been in the last couple of years. But one of the other things that we've been looking at in New England is a changing in what we call the timing of the spring freshet, which is that large pulse of water that comes down our rivers once we get snow melt in the spring. And it's been particularly uh, in northern New England is something where we're really seeing this, where it's coming much earlier, up to, I believe, two weeks earlier, where, whereas here in the, um, in the Connecticut River watershed, we have a lot of um, water that comes from snow melt in the northern part of the watershed in Vermont and New Hampshire. And we do see a, we do see a change in the timing of the arrival of that pulse of water by something like five to nine days. Um, the big difference being here in the Connecticut River, we also have um, effects uh, because of many of the dams and the and the uh, watershed, and those also affect the timing of water getting to um, Long Island Sound. Mark, I'd like to ask you about some of the impacts of climate change, you think, on, on drought conditions or other conditions that we're talking about here today. Yeah, in the broadest context, it's a matter of national security. I don't think there's any other way to put it. Um, even here in the U.S. where say famine may not be uh, a, a thing we, inc- we encounter. Certainly it is a matter of life and death um, in other continents and developing countries. This food, water, energy nexus, um, in the western U.S., you know, this at one point, 75% of their energy is derived from hydropower. They're trying to do a lot now to get more renewable energy into that portfolio to get those numbers down. And I think back to the earlier comments, um, you know, one of the things we're not doing a very good job of, and I understand, you know, the intrinsic value of these these natural ecosystems and, and tourism and, and recreation and all that good stuff, but we're not collecting the impact baseline information well enough. There is no systematic drought impact collection going on. We've developed a database since um, 2005. It's called the Drought Impact Reporter. If you just go to droughtreporter.unl.edu or Google Drought Impact Reporter, any citizen can come in and enter in their impacts. We want to see it. We want them to upload photos. We want them to go back to that same spot year after year so we can develop a baseline to see how we're being impacted now and how that may change over time with climate change. Uh, Gary, before we uh, run out of time in this segment, I'd really like your thoughts on whether or not we might have to rethink the idea that the Northeast will just never be in a drought crisis like the one that we see in California. I mean, when we talked about this some years ago, many people who look at this every single day said, look, we're never going to be California. We're never going to be Texas. It's just a very different uh, type of climate system here. It's a very different type of terrain here. But is there, 
seeing as how we're seeing so many rapid changes because of climate change, including those that we wouldn't have predicted 20 years ago, I guess I'm just wondering if the idea of a huge northeast drought is something that we we should file away as unbelievable or something that might actually be coming down the pike at some point. Well, you have experts on whether or not it's unbelievable, um, but certainly the following can be said. Um, climate change is creating extra stress on lots and lots of systems, um, infrastructure, dams, um, in New England as well as California and stuff were built with the expectation that the old climate was going to last for a very, very long time. Uh, We now know that that's not true. Um, We are not seeing the new normal. We have no idea what the new normal is. And so it is certainly in our best interest to say that the extreme tale of low precipitation drought in the Northeast cannot be dismissed as completely improbable, and therefore we should begin to think about uh, how we might organize ourselves to be able to respond. And, and one of the points, and, and I, you know, I applaud the idea of, of getting citizens involved in providing information about indicators and monitoring what is changing outside their kitchen window. Um, but at the very least, um, begin to think about what are the really important indicators that would suggest changes in behavior as we anticipate that a drought is about to happen. Uh, if we do that after the fact, it's going to be very, very expensive. If we do it before the fact and begin to incorporate that into our decisions about how to invest in infrastructure, it will be far less uh, expensive and it will put us in a position where we're, we're much better prepared. Connecticut is, and is, is very well prepared for um, what people would say is the mainstream climate change, sea level rise and extreme precipitation events and, and intensity going up and things like that. But something that's, that's really on the dark tail is also something that somebody should think about. And Mark, I'm, I'm wondering if I can get your thoughts on this, too. And maybe not my, my doomsday scenario of is Connecticut eventually California, but something that Gary touches on, and I know a lot of people are looking at, is that because of the unpredictability of what's happening surrounding climate change, it may just be harder to predict drought conditions moving forward, and that in itself can be a problem. What, what do you see long term? Well, yeah, I agree with everything Gary had laid out there. In fact, uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, one thing I think is we can't compare directly apples to apples, more maybe like bananas to apples or fruit cocktail, (laughs) is the fact that it doesn't take a drought like that in the East Coast because of the way the systems are designed and and the lack of long-term storage. Um, And so any any ripple in that is going to have an impact. And even if you think there's more water in the system, which there very may well be, and a, and a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, what we're also seeing, though, are changes in the timing that, um, that John alluded to. And we're also seeing um, more days between these rain events, which can still cause stress on the system. So, you know, this, this normal hasn't established itself. So I think, um, you know, anything we can do to sort of adapt to that now is the way to go. And Connecticut does have a drought mitigation plan, one of only a handful, maybe a dozen states out of the 47 that have drought plans that we define as more of a mitigation plan. So um, it it was issued in 2003, so it's probably maybe time to think about updating it, 
needs to be done probably about every 10 years. So the good thing is they do have one on the books, and uh, it does say who's accountable to do what and when they do it. When we come back from our break, we'll talk more about what plans are in place here in Connecticut. I want to thank Mark Svoboda, who's a climatologist at the National Drought Mitigation Center based at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for having me on. And thanks also to Gary Yo, Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University. Thank you, Gary. It, it's been a pleasure. If I could just add one more thing. Quickly, if you would. Yeah. Um, we have to worry about extreme precipitation events. Uh, average rainfall over the course of the year might not change very much, might actually get a little bit drier. But our rain is coming in big events and um, those are problematic as well. Well, we're going to look at some more of the problems and also maybe some solutions coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, some live music from a band we love called Wise Old Moon. They've been changing over the years as they built a big following in Connecticut. One thing that hasn't changed is the band's songwriter, vocalist, and leader, Connor Milliken. We'll talk to Connor, and we'll hear some of their music live in the studio. Join us for Wise Old Moon on the next Where We Live. Today on the show, we're talking about drought. Here in Connecticut, an extreme severe multi-year droughts in places like California. We're trying to find out what drought means to us, and we're joined by John Mullaney. He's from the U.S. Geological Survey's New England Water Science Center, and also by Margaret Miner, who is executive director of Rivers Alliance of Connecticut, co-chair of the state's Water Planning Council Advisory Group. Margaret Miner, welcome back to Where We Live. Hello, John and John. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you. Margaret. And, and Margaret, I'd like to ask you, first of all, about the statewide water plan. We've been talking about this for years. Obviously, it's a huge concern to us here in not only Connecticut, but around the Northeast that, uh, as I think our previous speakers had said, um, we do have a resource here in water that we've in many ways taken for granted. Luckily, there's some more planning around it in a state like Connecticut. What does this water plan do for us? Well, we don't know yet. Um, it was designed, uh, it, a, an old statute was revived in response to the uh, proposal by the Metropolitan District Commission in Hartford to, uh, it came in rather late in the bidding, to send a couple of million gallons a day from the Farmington River watershed over to the new, um, the expanding Yukon campus in stores, uh, the Farmington River uh, community in, the, in that watershed protested loudly and effectively, and um, numerous uh, media and experts were asking, well, don't we have a plan that covers this kind of thing and gives guidelines on what um, what you should do with uh, large diversions of water? And no, we didn't have a plan. So um, John Hampton from uh, Simsbury was uh, certainly a leader in getting legislators together and uh, legislation did pass 
uh, quite balanced uh, legislation calling for a comprehensive uh, water plan for Connecticut, and comprehensive means uh, benefiting or paying attention to both fish and faucet, which is a way of saying um, water in its natural condition and water supply. Um, and there's often tension between the stewards of those uh, two different um, versions of water. Well, first of all, Margaret, and the fact that we don't have a statewide water plan, obviously it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We've talked about this in our program before, and it's good that we're moving in that direction. From your perspective, what does that or should that look like? I mean, what does a, a plan for Connecticut really accomplish if we're able to get the right sort of plan drawn up? Often people say uh, somewhat complacently, I think, about Connecticut, well, we have plenty of water. We're water-rich. Um, it's just a question. We don't always have water where we need it and when we need it, and it's a question of solving that problem. That does perhaps a plan that um, gave a decision criteria for that sort of um, guideline uh, would be helpful, but it really only addresses water supply. Um, I think I, I'm much more concerned by the general um, loss of good water in the state. The, we've, we've kind of stalled. Um, after the Clean Water Act, we had several decades of improvement, but we've kind of stalled. Our um, fresh water uh, and estuary water is not what it should be in terms of quality climate change, and I agree we're going to have flashy droughts and flashy storms, is actually making it worse. So I, I would like to see, uh, in a water plan, I would like to see provisions that would guard against any utility or entity or your neighbor doing serious damage to a stream, your aquifer, headwaters, wetlands. And at the moment, the way the laws have grown up in Connecticut, in some cases, uh, one can legally do that sort of harm. Mm. The, the uh, premier example, I guess, was in Yukon in 2005, when Yukon drew down the Fenton River. They have since signed a, a good river um, streamflow plan, and they've been doing conservation. But it, it was legal, and it's still uh, other than the MOU they signed, it still would be legal. So I'm concerned with the, I'm hoping that a water plan will address and retard the everyday degradation of water uh, resources that we're seeing and will do something to promote healthy water uh, in the Sound and in our rivers uh, and a return of a healthy community of native species would be a good sign we're on the right track. Well, I, we I, don't I, have that now. I, I just want to break in because I want to get John Mullaney's uh, take on this and your view on what, what you think a statewide water plan might need to accomplish from, from where you sit as someone who studies uh, water level conditions in, in the state. Well, I think I, would, I think I would echo some of the things that Margaret said for sure. And, um, but, you know, one of the things I often find when, when we look at water use and availability in the state um, right now, we still have one of, the, one of the big components of this plan might be to be able to pull together. Uh, for instance, it might be surprising to learn that we don't have access to good data on water use in the state right now, for instance. So, having and, and, a, and why is that? Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with our um, some of our 
some of our water laws that go back a long time, but some of them also have to do with things such as homeland security and um, having that kind of information un under uh, FOIA requests only. So um, one of the things we will need in order to move forward with the plan is to really to take stock of where we are currently and what are we using. Yeah. I want to get to the phone call uh, quickly here. Peter is in Greenwich. Hi, Peter. Go ahead quickly, if you would. Yes, thank you. I'm a landscape architect, and I feel like uh, my profession has let our state down in particular. I think we need to look at planning, not regulations. And it can really begin at a sub-watershed label, as in uh, neighborhood. One of the things that's happened... I, lucky to have a practice out west as well and the saying out there is no creek no eat everybody takes uh, water very seriously and what we've instituted here in connecticut in particular is uh, safe roads first i call it paved pipe pollute where we shove all the water into the stream as fast as can be so we don't have unsafe roads water shed management should include we all know we have very strictly enforced uh, regulations for wetlands. Now, wetlands are already wet, so when it rains, the water runs off. If we were trapping the water, I call it DRI, detain, retain, infiltrate, near or below the water that is coming off the wetlands, we could recharge the water tables and so forth. But mm -hmm. to have uh, blanket regulations like that and... Look at dams. Dams are torn down, period. But if they are incrementally adjusted so that they can, in flash flood times, retain water so that uh, you have less downstream flooding, but also in dry times when you don't have water and then suddenly you get two inches of rain, we can recharge the water table right there. So I think that um, I'd like, if any other landscape architects are listening, I, I think we should... Uh, get back to what worked for three or four hundred years until the professional engineers and experts took over what we call planning in the state well, now. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for the phone call. He's, he's calling on his profession to, to do a, a bigger part. And Margaret Miner, we just have a little bit of time left, but I'm wondering if you can talk about that, that notion of planning, and that's at the state, maybe the regional, which we don't really do very well here, or at the, at the town and city level versus just legislating and regulating. Uh, what, what do you say? Well, I, planning and good design is very important. The principle generally being keep water local. So if you're generating it, don't ship it all the way out to, you know, into storm drains out into Long Island Sound. Infiltrate. Low-impact development is very important. And, in fact, we're giving an award in a couple of days to the conservation districts in the towns, which work uh, very vigorously on this. I wanted to just thank uh, John Mullaney for his comment on uh, problems with data and freedom of information. Anyone listening to this will be astonished it was not I who raised that point. Uh, I've been extremely concerned for a number of years that we have unique uh, water security um, laws and water secrecy laws, and it at this point, it's impossible really to do the kind of water plan we envisioned without the data uh, from water companies, and we're just not getting it. Is that because we have we have essentially a system that's set up with, with private and semi-private semi companies running our water resources, Margaret? No, actually, um, I don't think it is. I think it, uh, it arose in a uh, – the laws arose in a time of – 
stress and panic, the most damaging uh, past in 2003. And, you know, they, they applied not to the private companies, they applied to public orders and to the agencies that received the, any data, whether from public or private. So there's lots to be said about public and private, both systems in Connecticut. That is not the root of the problem is that water secrecy went went into effect. It is quite unique. Power companies or chemical facilities don't have this secrecy. Mm. And um, it's, you know, once you get something like that, as we've seen in government, it's hard to give it up. It's, hard, it's very hard to give it up. Margaret yeah. Miner, executive director of the Rivers Alliance of Connecticut and co-chair of the state's Water Planning Council Advisory Group. Always good to speak with you on this important issue. Also, John Mullaney from the USGS. Thank you so much for coming in today. Continue this conversation about our water resources at wnpr.org slash where we live. This is where we live.